This week on Thinking Biblically, we're looking at the question, should Christians celebrate Passover? Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to examining how all Scripture speaks to all of life. Often we do this with guests uh, that I interview, and we've had some wonderful, delightful conversations the past few weeks. I invite you to check those out. This week, it's just going to be me, and we're going to be looking at the, the question of should Christians celebrate Passover? Uh, Before we get into that, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe, uh, please review, share, and all those good things. And you might also want to consider supporting this podcast so I can keep bringing this to you. Um, So Passover this year begins uh, this Friday, April the 15th, um, and um, there's various feelings in both the Jewish community and in the Christian world with regard to whether or not believers in Jesus should celebrate Passover. Uh, It's become more and more popular uh, in in Christian circles to do so. Um, I've been involved in overseeing what we call Messianic Passover Seders uh, for believers, non-Jewish believers. I've done many, many of them in the the past several years. I'm doing a big one this Saturday night here in Ottawa where I live. And um, it's always been a good time, but some people think, well, it's a, it's a Jewish celebration. It should only be for Jewish people, and that distinction should be preserved. And then, and then others others say, well, it's it's biblical. It's part of the the, the Bible, and it it should relate to all believers in the God of Israel, whether you come from a Jewish background like my wife and I, or or you don't. And so, what I want to start with is I want to share with you. Uh, the journey that my wife and I have been on it, with the, how we've related to our own Jewish background as Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And then we'll look at uh, the relationship of Passover in particular to all believers, Jews and non-Jews, and then ask the, that question, should Christians, try to answer it actually, should Christians celebrate Passover? And, and if so, what, what should that look like? And so, uh, starting with our own story, some of you are, are aware of my own faith journey. Uh, you can look that up. I'll put the, the link in the description if you haven't heard or seen that yet. Um, both my wife and I come from Jewish background. On All of our grandparents uh, were, were Jewish. Uh, we both grew up in the city of, of Montreal, which is a um, a large Jewish community in North America and where we were living, the part of Montreal where where we grew up called Cote St. Luke was uh, a highly dense Jewish neighborhood. Uh, the schools that we went to uh, were like 90-something percent Jewish. And, and so the whole environment in which we grew up uh, was, was a very Jewish one. And in the Jewish world, there's various degrees of religious observance. Even among those that don't regard themselves as very religious, many, many Jewish people celebrate certain ones of the holidays. Uh, there's the, the, the probably the two most popular ones that 
most Jewish people do observe in some way or other would be Passover. Uh, I like to say for, um, for in the United States, Thanksgiving is that big family holiday. Well, for Jewish people, Passover is that. It's a time when extended families get together. People will travel long distances. It's been more difficult to do in these years of COVID. Uh, but this is the time when extended families will get together more than any other time in, in the Jewish year. The other very popular holiday is, is Hanukkah, uh, which is late November into December. Um, I can get into the, the degrees of the other holidays as well and how popular or not popular they are and, and why, but I won't get distracted by that for now. It's all to say that Passover is probably the most popular holiday. Um, and again, it doesn't matter whether you're very religious or you're not religious. Passover still has this very special place in the, in the life of Jewish people worldwide. And so both my wife and I, and um, I, she shared her story in a, a podcast as well, and you can listen to that um, or watch that uh, and, or mine, and you can see some of the differences. Uh, but Passover was a very important time of the year. When we each came to know the Lord in, in the different ways that we did, uh, we both saw that our faith in the Messiah was a Jewish faith, that it was very, very connected to our own Jewishness. In fact, um, and I'll, I'll stick more with myself for now. Um, believing in Yeshua actually is what helped me grasp the, the significance of my Jewish identity. It's a very common thing among Jewish people to, to, to struggle over what does it really mean to be Jewish. I discovered the, the way to answer that question is to connect with the God who created us through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and chose us for his purposes. And so without our connection to God, the God of Israel, knowing who we are as the people of Israel is, is, is a difficult thing. And so coming to know the Jewish Messiah is what connected me to my Jewishness. And when I came to the, to the Lord back in September of 1976, long time ago now, um, the I didn't really care that much about what it meant to be Jewish, and yet I did. And this is actually this kind of struggle is very common, in that as a Jewish person, that I was Jewish was important to me. How I expressed it, on the other hand, that's another story, where there were other elements of life that were far more important than how I expressed my my Jewishness. Having said that, when the topic of Jesus came up on that September afternoon, the fir my first concern was, he has nothing to do with me as a Jewish person. Jesus is for them, he's not for us. And as my story goes, it was by being introduced to the prophecies in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, and seeing that uh, in our scriptures, were the predictions of not only the Messiah, but that Jesus was that Messiah. And so when this young man, John, shared with me for the first time the, the truths from the Bible about, uh, about the Messiah, he did so completely within a Jewish context. 
Uh, at the time, he used the term completed Jew as to what was happening to me. The Jewish, it, it, the sense of that is the Jewish people have been expecting the Messiah to come. It turns out we actually missed him 2,000 years ago, most of us, did, uh, most of us. and uh, by coming to believe in him, it completes or it fulfills, it doesn't end it, 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 it brings it to a, a, a fulfillment. Now I'm a, a, I'm a complete Jewish person. And if there are any Jewish people listening to this, that could sound really strange. Um, it, I'm not trying to diss who we are as Jewish people with or without Yeshua, but there is something about who we are as Jewish people that doesn't get fully realized until we know him. Now, I didn't fully comprehend that that afternoon, but that's the way it was presented to me. And was and everything ab about this young man's presentation, including at the time when he, he asked me early on in our conversation, who do I thought wrote the New Testament, Jews or non-Jews? And I said, non-Jews, of course, because it has to do with Christianity, and Christianity has nothing to do with Jewish people or Jewish things or anything like that. And uh, he said, no, Jewish people did. And one author, Luke, perhaps was not Jewish, um, but uh, all the other writers were. And, and the more you look at the New Testament, it's Jewish through and through. And I don't want to get too distracted by that topic. It's something that we'll come back to as, as we go along and thinking biblically, because a proper understanding of the New Testament as a Jewish document, deeply rooted in the Old Testament, is the only way to fully understand the Bible, in my humble opinion. These are, these are, of course, things that I've worked through and, and worked on in the past many decades that I've known uh, the Messiah. But but that day when John shared this with me, it was completely in this Jewish context to the point that I didn't even know that I had what we might say I became a Christian. And even to today, and I share this with you and maybe we'll explore this some other time too, is it's possible that the term Christian which appears three times only in the New Testament, that it was a word that was applied to non-Jewish followers of Jesus. It's a possibility. It's really hard to know because it's only mentioned the three times and without too much clarification. Um, but anyway, so I didn't even know I was associated with this official religion called Christianity, whatever that means, to the point that there's some... Um, Within the next couple of weeks, my mother said to me, we had some interesting interactions over the next little while. She eventually, three months after me, also came to know Yeshua as her Messiah. And one of the main things that drew her was the incredible change in um, and transformation in my own life. But in those several weeks, uh, we conflicted quite a bit. And I remember her saying to me, if I'd become a Christian, I had to pack my bags. Had to move out. Well, I didn't pack my bags because I didn't even know that I was a Christian. Um, I understood myself as a, a Jewish believer, as a completed Jew. Eventually, I would use the term Messianic Jew, this sort of thing. I like Jewish believer because then it begs the question of, you know, believing in what, and then that could be explained. The, the titles, the various kinds of, of, of terms have so much extra baggage on them when we use them it conjures things in, in people's minds so i'd rather explain maybe that's one of the reasons why i do thinking biblically because i like to explain things so uh it was only sometime later than this young man john um at, referred used the word christian to apply to himself and at the time when he said that he was talking to somebody else and i was listening to the conversation and i remember thinking oh no i better not tell my mother 
Um, anyway, so that's all to say that my foundation of my faith in Yeshua was a very, very Jewish one. And that's how I understood it. It wouldn't be that long before a lot of my uh, contacts and new friends among other believers would be non-Jewish. But it was interesting when I came to the Lord, uh, it was through a Jewish believer and his girlfriend was the high school friend that I knew and, and she was Jewish and she had a twin sister who came to believe too. Of course, the twin sister's Jewish. And there and other there's all these other Jewish believers. And so the context we had was there's this core of us of Jewish young people that had come to believe in in Jesus. Eventually would call him by his 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 actual given name, the Hebrew Yeshua, but in those days we called him Jesus. I still call him Jesus, depending who I'm talking to. Um, so um I prefer Yeshua. But I don't want to make a big deal out of it. I just want to make sure that we preserve his 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 right context, his, his Jewish context, not because it's a it's a it's a thing that we need to to push on people, but we want to to make sure that we convey he, him and his truth within his own context before we apply him into other contexts. And and as I talk, you can't see what's going on in my head, but it would be so easy me easy for me to go down several bunny trails, and I'll try to keep myself from doing that. Um, and so my my context, context as a new believer was that this was Jewish and other Jewish believers, and um, and living in Montreal, uh, all, my, all my old friends were Jewish, and, and, and being Jewish and being part of Jewish life is just the way we lived. Um, and so... Both for Rob and I, Rob and I got married. Uh, we both came to the Lord around 1976. We were married in 1980. Won't go into all the the, the journey about how that all, all happened. Uh, but she too had a very strong understanding, even though her story was different, and she she came to believe through non-Jewish people or through her best friend who 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 was uh, a Gentile, um, and yet she had a very strong understanding that believing in Jesus was a Jewish thing. Even though the world sees it as a non-Jewish thing, both of us understood that believing in the Jewish Messiah was a very Jewish thing to do. And uh, so we got married in 1980, and we had our first child around our, our first anniversary in 1981. And then um, another child uh, about a year and a half later, and then 1986, we had our, our first boy. And so the, the kids start coming. And um, we're now living in Vancouver. And at the time, we were I was working with uh, an organization that sought to bring the good news of the Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. And so we want to do that in, in a most understandable way as possible. And when we're relating to Jewish people, our own people, we want to present him in a, a Jewish way. And as we went along, we were seeing that even though we believed that our faith was intrinsically, essentially, to the core Jewish, the way we would express our faith, both in terms of the words that we used, that we would refer to the Jewish Bible, of course, we'd refer to the prophecies in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that we would do, but the lingo we would use, the way we would explain a lot of things, and the way we were living 
actually didn't truly reflect a Jewish lifestyle. And uh, it, 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 like a lot of Jewish people, we didn't, we, we did and we didn't. It's really, it's kind of hard to explain like what kind of lifestyle that we, we each lived um, as, as we grew up. Um, both in both of our growing up, neither of us, our families kept kosher. Um, there, our grandparents would have, to some extent, for at least a period of time, and there's a very, very common story for Jewish people in, in North America, but by the time you get to the, so we all, our, our, all of our grandparents um, have connections back to Russia and that part of, of the world, and, and came over in the 1920s, 1930s, and there was a large Jewish immigration, there were nowhere, uh, so immigration, they came over to North America in the 20s and the 30s, 1920s and 1930s. And while there were many very religious ones and people that uh, were uh, kept uh, being very strict with the Jewish religion, there were all these various degrees. And so, you know, Robin and I are, we grew up on the spectrum of of, of whether it's strict or lax in, in with regard to the Jewish religion. So, um, there were the keeping of the holidays. There, um, while, and it's hard to explain the, the food things. There would be a a Jewish style to the the food that we ate, and and, and some things that we would avoid, and other things we wouldn't avoid. Again, it's, it gets a little complicated. Maybe I could spend more time on on, on this sort of thing another time. But uh, we 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 came from. A pretty typical, fairly secular, with tinges of Jewish custom kind of growing up Jewishness. And if you don't believe me, talk to your other Jewish friends and you're going to see similarities, um, again, on a spectrum, on a spectrum of observance and, and, and custom and, and, and that sort of thing. So we we didn't have a lot of a lot of Jewish custom about us. I mentioned we kept the holidays. There was food preferences, and now a lot of our social group are non-Jews, and 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 so that affects us somewhat culturally. But our now we have children. How are we going to raise our children? We're trying to bring the the, the truth about the Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. What's the most effective way to do that? And I started to see, and we started to see, that we were actually presenting our faith to Jewish, our own Jewish people in a non-Jewish sort of way, even using the term Jesus. Jesus is a very jarring name, and, and I can go on another trail about how we get to the name Jesus in English, um, and just because in, in Greek, it's, oh, I'm going on the bunny trail, nope. Don't go on the bunny trail. I'm going to stick to the topic. So, when Jewish people hear the name Jesus, it it's jarring and it's certainly not representative of something that's that's Jewish. It automatically represents him in a non-Jewish way, even though his actual given name is a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which probably be better translated as Joshua, which would also be seen as a Jewish name, but we're, we've got this in, in the English world, Jesus, and so what do we do about that? Now, I, I should say uh, something that was, was an issue in our trying to grapple with these things was 
both of us had been influenced by certain teachers early on, some amazing people, godly people. Uh, one particular gentleman was not not Jewish, but he understood Jewish things and 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 Jewish ways and all the rest, and brilliant biblical scholar. Another gentleman was a Jewish believer, but both of them um, uh, had a very low regard to Jewish believers and, and then non-Jewish believers who were pursuing a more Jewish-style faith in Jesus that became known as Messianic Judaism. They regarded the Messianic Jewish movement as divisive, as somehow creating um, like a Jewish-only version of the community of faith. And, and there's statements like in the book of Ephesians that talks about unity and, and other passages about unity and and the, the need to break down the dividing wall. It talks about that and also in Ephesians. And so there was this idea that, that in order to preserve the unity of the worldwide community of faith in the Messiah, that creating communities, congregations, um, uh, kind of for, for for Jews only sort of thing, but they're, they're hardly ever for Jews only, which is another topic I won't get into, uh, but that they somehow uh, expressing faith in Yeshua in a Jewish way specifically and somewhat culturally different from your typical Christian congregations, that they somehow believed that was a bad thing. I wish I knew the things I knew now to be able to have conversations back with them, but that's impossible. Um, uh, and so we were very influenced by these these wonderful people and who loved the Lord and loved His Word and were were brilliant. And so we were predisposed that there's something about these these messianic congregations that was suspect. While we're in, in Bible school, we visited one. There were uh, there was some of these groups in Toronto. We were going to um, what was then called Ontario Bible College, and we would sometimes go to one of these Messianic congregations. And there were various elements that we liked, and some things we thought, oh, I don't know if we would do it that way. And this this is before this is before um, we started having children and moved to Vancouver. And so now we're in Vancouver. We're we're not totally against the Messianic thing. Um, but we're a little suspect of it because how we were influenced. And but what we weren't seeing is that we were just living a certain way, as I mentioned, that didn't really reflect um, a, a Jewish way of life. And um, and so we began to examine this. Um, something as part of that journey that was not specifically a, a Jewish thing is there was a, a a book that we came upon called Bruchko. It's a story of a, of a missionary to South America uh, by the name of Bruce Olson. And he grappled with something similar. Now, in his case, he was not, he was not a native to the tribe that he was, he was trying to bring Yeshua to. He, um, he was um, from North America. But he saw these huge cultural gaps between how he expressed his faith in Yeshua and how these people understood life and saw the world and their culture. Uh, one of the interesting ones that, that kind of got me uh, was um, he was talking, I, I don't know if it was just one of the people or to the chief of one of these tribes or whatever, and the the the, the native person said to, to Bruce, Bruce Co became his, his, like his native name, 
um, there's a reference to these buildings these Christian missionaries would build, and that they would build these like squarish or rectangle buildings with corners. That's normal for us. And he said, but we don't build our buildings that way. We build our buildings round, like God is eternal with no beginning and no end. And that really struck him, and it really struck me. Why are we building buildings that speak something very contrary to one of their, uh, their one of their cultural expressions of the divine that actually is rooted in truth? Like, does it really matter if our buildings are are round or they're square or rectangle? Does it really matter? Um, they could be triangular. It depends. Uh, things like buildings are cultural expressions. They have practicality to them, but they also have, there's a lot of culture that goes into what we think is a suitable kind of, of building, and especially when it gets to things like our religious gatherings. Um, they often reflect our understanding of, of God and, and truth and life. And so here they were trying to have these meetings in these uh, buildings with corners rather than understanding how these people saw God in life. Why not do a round building? That makes it makes a ton of sense. And so it was things like that that got us thinking, um, well, what? how are we squishing a, a view of Yeshua into square buildings rather than uh, then offering him to people in a, in a round building. So I, I hope you're following what I'm saying. And, and so uh, Bruce Olson's not the only person to grapple with some of these cultural elements of how biblical faith is brought to people. Hudson Taylor, way, way before in the 1800s, was a pioneer in how can I make the truth of the Bible clear to Chinese people in a Chinese way. And a lot of people didn't like that, that he was doing that. He was dressing like a Chinese person, having his hair like a Chinese person of that day, and that sort of thing. Because there was these ideas that um, if, if you believe in the God of the Bible, that meant you had to dress this way and not that way. And uh, and some of those things, not all the things, like that the, there are biblical issues about clothing, but but certainly not things like buttons or zippers or, or I'm wearing, wearing a cardigan. Like, like there's various ways that we can dress that um, many of which are acceptable from a biblical point of view. And yet we associate things like even colors and, and style and times of when we meet and all sorts of things many of which are really neither here nor there from a moral or spiritual point of view. There are things that uh, should be addressed specifically by the Bible, and we're going to get to that in a second. And so um, there's that whole thing, the question of are there things that we're doing that are neither here nor there, that ways that we're living that are suggesting that we're really not Jewish after all, so there's that, then there's um, elements of Bible itself. And so what we did, we believed, and still do believe, that the Bible is the authoritative word of, only authoritative Word of God, and that all of life should be examined by it. And so we began to put our Jewish culture and religious components of our, of our Jewish background through a biblical filter, and praying and seeking God to determine what things should we 
uh, should we do because they're biblical? What things we shouldn't do because they're against the Bible? What things are neither here nor there that within the scope of Scripture are permissible? But things that would help relate our faith to our own people in a legitimate Jewish way. And so we, we started doing that. And so things like the feasts, uh, the feasts, festivals, the Jewish holidays, uh, were part of that journey for us as we, as we looked at, 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 at some of that and seeking how to ex- express our faith as, as Jewish people. Um, and so it's been, a, that whole thing has been a, an interesting journey as uh, we eventually started a Messianic congregation in, in Vancouver that's still going today. Um, and one of the reasons, and I, it came up when I interviewed Michael Gertzman a couple of weeks ago, because uh, uh, him and his wife and me and Robin, we, we started that fellowship in our living room in Vancouver. Um, and uh, part of that, what, what happened was, is we were a growing group of Jewish believers that were parts of, of different fellowships that at that time, there were no messianic congregations that we knew of, but we would meet uh, once a month. And I can't remember if we were doing once every two weeks, but we were a good sized group of Jewish believers and a few non-Jewish believers that would gather together and, and, we, and we would celebrate the holidays and we'd do some of these things. Um, but there was still a lot of hesitation about whether we should have a, do a messianic congregation. Uh, and until, um, somebody was visiting as part of a Jewish outreach organization, uh, came from another part of North America to um, kind of check out Vancouver as a possibility of starting a Messian- Messianic congregation. And so when we heard about this, both Michael and I were very concerned that why should somebody come from the outside when we've got this group of Jewish believers already in Vancouver, um, at least let's, let us get together and look at the issues and see what we should do. And that's how uh, that congregation was birthed. And so that's all part of that time period in the, the, in the mid-80s that we were, we were grappling w- with these things. And it's still a journey that we're on. Um, and it's something that I encourage everyone to do. And it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, non-Jewish, we should all be putting our lives through a biblical lens to see how we should live. It's part of the reasons why I do Thinking Biblically. Um, And maybe there's a better title because I think some people think that this is all about it's all in the head. And it's just a way to, it's a way to say, um, we need to grasp a a biblical way of looking at all of life. And that's what I understand Thinking Biblically to be. And so whatever our background is, we should always be putting our lives before the scriptures and seeing how God is calling us to live. And it'd be nice if the Bible was more like a textbook. Actually, it wouldn't be nice at all. But it would be, you know what I mean? If the Bible was a textbook, we could just learn all of its principles, and then we could have these experts. They tell us what to do. And I know a lot of people relate to the Bible that way, but I don't think the Bible's written that way. The Bible's written mainly as narrative story. We've talked about that a little bit on Thinking Biblically. It's not written that way. It's written in such a way that it draws us into a grand story, a grand narrative, and it's something that we can continue to relate to and and learn from our entire lives. And it seems like we never will get to the bottom of it. It's And remember, the author of the scripture is alive, and so we we don't read the Bible in isolation. Uh, We should be reading in a community, of course, and interact with other people, but let's remember to always invite the author into our Bible reading or 
Bible study, our, our contemplation of biblical truths, and always laying our lives before him that he can correct us as we go. And that's what I'm still seeking to do, and that's what I encourage everyone else to do. And so uh, as we grappled, as we grappled with our Jewishness, as I said, we began to look at various Jewish holidays. And um, I'd like to start to move into answering that question, should Christians celebrate Passover? And, and by way of, of getting to that, um, one of the things we need to understand when we're looking at Jewish uh, religious and cultural expressions, um, many of them have connections to Scripture, but there's been a lot of other things added to it. We call them traditions. Now, sometimes people will look at Jewish traditions in some uh, branches of, of Christianity's uh, traditions, and, and we point fingers at that and go, those are non-biblical traditions. The fact is we... But the fact is, we all have traditions that uh, that we have put over Scripture. the The ways we do the things that we do, and the way we've adopted, tried hopefully to adopt biblical truth to life, um, very often are are the ways we've seen how to apply Scripture, live by its uh, its implications, this sort of thing. But what we actually do very often isn't scripture itself it's our attempt to obey god through his word hopefully um and so we need to allow scripture to speak into all those things and so um as i mentioned that's what we've tried to do with our with our jewish heritage and and jewish customs and 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 so on and so the, the jewish holidays in particular um most of them most of the the popular ones are mentioned in scripture how they're celebrated however has a lot to do with various traditions traditional ways of doing um those those festivals and one of the issues with what are called the major feasts in uh from the books of moses there's passover there's tabernacles or Sukkot, also called booths, and there's Shavuot, Pentecost. So those are the three what are called major festivals. Now, all three of them called for certain sacrifices to be done first at the tabernacle, Hebrew Mishkan, or the temple later on. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, thus removing some of the core foundational aspects of these festivals. And so from that time on, we could say nobody has actually kept or celebrated those festivals. What's been done instead is in the Jewish world, which we'll start with, we engage those festivals through various ways of, in a sense, reminiscing about them, referring back to them. Um, But we can't actually celebrate them because we're missing that central component of the sacrifices. Now, some people would say, well, we can't do them because the temple's destroyed. We don't have the sacrifices to do. What can you do? But in, in, in the non-believing Jewish world, the way the Jewish tradition got developed, there were elements added, not only for the festivals, but in, in Jewish life in general. There have been added certain things 
to be replacements for the sacrifices, which God himself never commanded. Again, that there might be things that are reminiscent of the sacrifices, that's fine. But my point is, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually doing it by the book when we're not doing it by the book. There's connections to the book, to the Word of God, um, but it's a mixture of, of Bible and other things. But remember, it, it, like, and there's some people that they react to that. Well, you shouldn't be doing any, any of those other things because they're not in the Bible. Well, if you only did the things that were in the Bible, you couldn't live. Um, and, um, and so, um, I just thought of this one. Uh, there's, uh, first of all, the, you know the thing about ha- ha- not washing hands in the New Testament? Well, there's nothing in the, in the, in the Jewish Bible commanding about washing hands. So does that mean we shouldn't wash hands? And there's not, I don't, there's references to soap, but there's no hand soap. Does that mean we shouldn't use hand soap? Uh, no glasses. Does that mean we shouldn't wear glasses? And, and as we do thinking biblically, I'll, I'm going to talk about why things like glasses come out of a biblical worldview and that um, they are, it's, it's, we could say it's biblical to provide these sorts of things for people, even though they're not mentioned in Scripture. Um, I could probably explain this better, but I I want to keep going on this. Uh, And so just the fact that there are some biblical observances that have been now been connected to other things, that in itself isn't a problem. So maybe this would be a good time to, to reference the should word. The, the original question was, should Christians celebrate Passover? We need to be careful when we talk about should, uh, because what should be done, there's some things that apply to all people. You should not commit murder, folks. I'm very happy to say that to everyone. I'm not going to get into the other shoulds right now. I just thought that would be a safe one to say, that no one should commit murder. That applies to everyone at all time. There's other kinds of killings that are not murder. Let's not go on that tangent. But murder is forbidden for everyone. You should not commit murder. There are shoulds for everyone. There are shoulds that belong to certain time periods and not to others. Um, But by and large, apart from the absolute shoulds of Scripture, we need to be careful using the word should. And so wherever we go with this, something might be a good idea, but does that mean everybody should do it? Now, Robin and I dealt with what we should do about Passover and some of the other Jewish holidays. And it's, it's, I think it's fine for us to determine that there are some shoulds that we should do as we seek to discern this from God. Um. The other, the other problem with the should word too is it goes back to what I'm saying on the, the things, the, the the traditions that have been added. So often, what happens among non-Jewish believers who begin to see that there is validity to connecting with some of these holidays in in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, very often that moves on to should. They've been blessed by it, enriched by it, they've learned things they haven't learned before, and so on, and then it becomes everybody should do it. 
but what's the the only shoulds in some of these shoulds like keeping these festivals were associated with some things that we can't do anymore other things have been added we need to be careful with our shoulds so for us as jewish people we began to to do some of these things and incorporate it into our lives um now i don't want to take that much longer so i do want to get to the is there value for non-jews in in celebrating passover and the reason why i believe this is an important one especially this one and i guess i should say this first before we get into passover in particular it i think it's a, a biblical problem for when non-jewish people don't know their bible and so it does strike me how much of old testament a lot of non-jewish christians don't know it's the bible paul said that all scriptures inspired by god and is profitable and this is my paraphrase to equip us for effective godly living it's 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 it might even be a life verse or one of my life verses and it's it's something that drives me with this thinking biblically thing and and, and that is when paul said all scripture he was talking about what we now call the old testament the jewish bible the hebrew scriptures and so at, at, at the most basic at the most basic it's it's so grievous that so many people don't even know the bible they know bits and pieces most of them in the new testament but you can't really understand the new testament in the way it's intended without understanding the old testament and i know it's harder um i've, I've provided an online course which you can look it up it's still available i'll put the link in the description unleashing the old testament that maybe will unleash it unlock it for you um and one of the ways a, a one in a sense a simple thing to unlock all of bible unlock the new testament is by connecting with passover and one of the reasons why it's so important is because of what people call the Last Supper. And the Last Supper, as many of you know, that became the Christian ritual of communion or the Eucharist. Taking some bread and some wine to remember Yeshua's body and blood. Now, for a lot of believers, while that's pondered quite a bit and contemplated a lot that's all it is and i don't want to diminish that in any way but what's the context what is that him get him him sharing that bread and sharing that cup of wine with his his disciples what is that well it's passover that last supper was actually yeshua's last passover seder as we call the ritualistic uh, meal the it was their last passover seder before he was arrested and he leveraged elements of that passover seder to speak about himself thus connecting all believers with that feast now does that mean you should do passover Remember, nobody really can because we don't have the sacrifices. But at the very least, we need to understand what Passover is all about. And it, it, it gets a little more complicated because by Yeshua's day, there were already elements in their celebration that were added after God 
told Moses how the people of Israel were to keep uh, the Passover. God had commanded matzah, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Um, and, and the implication was to retell the story. And they were to do that every year, along with those sacrifices. Um, by, Yesh- by Yeshua's time, four cups of wine were added. And likely some of the other elements that are still in the Passover Seder that we celebrated when we were kids and have been done for centuries since Yeshua came. What a lot of people don't know, and which I love to share with them, is there what he did specifically about sharing that matzah, unleavened bread, um, at his last Passover Seder, that he inaugurated a change that is still being kept by non-believing Jewish people when Passover is celebrated. And so it's all to say that in order to fully grasp what Yeshua has done for us, to grasp the memorial meal that's, that's now called communion, what that what is that all about? It's so important to understand its context, which is Passover. And one of the ways that context can be provided is by celebrating some sort of messianic Passover Seder. And it needs to be a messianic one, um, especially as believers. Um, one of the things in the way that the Passover Seder was developed by Yeshua's day, is it didn't, by that time, it wasn't only a time to remember the rescue from Egypt under Moses, uh, from bondage to slavery. It also became a time to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. So then, when Messiah comes... And he basically, and he takes that remembrance bread, the matzah, and says, this is my body. He's saying, all that you were expecting has now, it's come to pass. That was a loaded, loaded thing that he did. And so when we as believers celebrate Passover, we remember the deliverance of the Jewish people from bondage to slavery and all that that represents, and the greater deliverance, which is ours through the Messiah. And so if you're interested in, um, in doing something like this, I do have something I can offer you. Uh, some of you might be aware that last year, um, I did an, an, a virtual Seder. We were still under the challenge of COVID lockdowns and that sort of thing. And, and it was my son Daniel that encouraged me to do it. And I wasn't sure because I knew it was going to be a lot of work, but it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun and it went so well. And so what we did is we did a live virtual Seder over Zoom. And um, we had people from all over the world, it's been an exaggeration, participate, some live, some pre-recorded, including we had one young lady uh, who uh, did some readings for us and some prayers from Egypt. She joined us live, it was two o'clock in the morning in in Egypt, and um, she was part of that. And we had some recorded uh, contributions from people in Israel and across Canada and the United States. And and, um, so that's still available. And I'm going to put the link to that in the description. So there's not only the the recording of last year's virtual Seder, I also have preserved the instructions. If you want to do what a lot of people did last year and follow along, you could do that. It, the recording provides the extra uh, advantage of you can pause the recording and have a full meal as we normally do. Um, it'd be great if you could do it live with people, and as I'm available to help people do that, I'd be very happy to do that, whether with my advice or if I could somehow get to where you are sometime, be very happy to lead a Messianic Seder for you. 
if possible. Um, but you could use the recording. There's the instructions available as well as the Haggadah. That's the that's the 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 script of the evening that you can follow. All that is still available from last year, and it should work for you uh, this year and next year, anytime you want to use it. And you don't have to wait for Passover time to do it. It's a lot nicer if you do it at Passover time. But um, uh, you can do it anytime you want. Again, if you have any questions about that, you can you can send them to me. Uh, but the links are there, and you can use that to do your own. You can do it by yourself, even, or with a group. You could do it with your whole community. It should all work. And um, I think you'd find that uh, very, very helpful. And so, um, again, if you have any questions about that, please email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. That's comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Do remember to subscribe, share this video. Um, maybe I should have done this earlier to give people more time, but there's still time. Uh, Passover is a few uh, days away. And so feel free to do that. I hope I've answered most of the questions about this. Again, if I haven't, if you have any concerns, um, please let me know. Comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.